Rob Cartledge of robcartledgeministries.com. Titus 2.1 says, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Multitudes of professed Christians around the globe are perplexed when it comes to doctrine and clearly articulating their faith. Because of this lack of understanding, many Christians are believing the most absurd and heretical beliefs. And due to this, we have seen an incredible increase of cultish views even inside of mainstream churches. This series, Critical Doctrine, is to confront this dilemma with clear and precise teaching on the basic foundational doctrines of our faith. Thank you, God. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the uh, announcements done by Bill today, Lord. Thank you for that and um, the gift he has in doing it. And uh, I just pray your blessing upon this part of the service now, that you will bless the uh, ministry that I'm about to deliver, Lord, as we complete the final uh, chapter in the uh, Christology series. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you give me the words and the wisdom to impart this message and do it justice and also be truthful to Scripture, holding fast to what the Word of God says and not departing from it. So I just pray your blessing upon all of us as we open our hearts and our minds to receive what the Spirit is saying to us today in your mighty name. Amen. So if you remember the Christology series, we have covered a lot of parts to this so far, right through from the deity of Christ, humanity, the union and deity of, and humanity of Christ, uh, the kenosis, the impeccability, the earthly life of Christ, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We also looked at the present ministry of Christ and now we're into the future ministry of Christ, which that last part has taken the most sermons to get through. And um, this is why we had two parts on just the second coming alone because I think it's a very valid section of study from the Christology. And also we've done a, a sermon on the rapture of the church. There's a lot more I could have covered in that sermon. I only really covered a, uh, some points since then. You know, I realised that there's at least five or six more areas that I could have gone into in relation to that. But I haven't. But I will go back to that one day. Today we're going to be pretty ambitious and we're going to get through the wrath of the Lamb during the tribulation. We're going to get through his millennial reign and his everlasting reign. Now it's not going to be a thorough study in relation to this, but I can direct you to a few Joe Schimmel sermons where he's, he's done quite a thorough study on some of these topics. But we're going to get enough insight from it, especially because of the amount of scripture we're going to read in relation to it, so that we have a full understanding of it. So in relation to that, let's go to Revelation. So this sermon's called Christ's Wrath and Reign. So 19 verse 11. It's going to be a bit of a read, but it's necessary for us to get insight into this whole millennial thing. What the, and a millennium simply means a thousand, a thousand years. When we have millennium of years. Okay, we're all there. Revelation 19, verse 11, and it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. There's two white horses mentioned in Revelation. The first one is mentioned in uh, Revelation 6. And it's when the first seal is broken and it's, it's a rider who's bent on conquest. A lot of people believe that to be speaking of the Antichrist, the rider on that white horse. And of course it's a counterfeit horse, a counterfeit uh, copycat of the coming of Christ. Because Christ is going to come on a white horse also. So this one is talking about the true one. This is talking about Jesus because he's, he's on a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. So who else could be called Faithful and True? But Jesus, 
With justice, he judges and he also makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. That's verification that in John 1 when it talks about the Word was with God, the Word was God, the name, his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, so the army of heaven were following him, and they were all on white horses also. And they were dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. And this angel said, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast of, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. And this is Battle of Armageddon. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs. Now, the beast and the false prophet are those that the Antichrist and, and the false prophet deceived mankind, brought in a one-world order, and they forced the tribulation to happen through uh, an abomination that causes desolation. These guys were seized. With these signs, they had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. And the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider of the, on the horse and all the birds scourged themselves on their flesh. So the rest were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of Jesus, this double-edged sword. There's other scriptures that says that the, the blood of those in that battle rose up to a horse's bridle, which is like about this deep. You know, that's a lot of blood. And because Jesus is pressing them like as in a wine press. And uh, so he just crushes them and destroys his enemy. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He bound him up. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. And I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Who are those that are on thrones? The saints. The saints. Well, there's certain saints, aren't they? Because Jesus says in Luke 22, he spoke about how he conferred on the disciples a kingdom and he's given them authority to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's given saints the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. Martyrs. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first, res first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's, that's the thousand years of peace. That's the thousand year millennial reign. And it's pretty clear that Jesus is there. The saints are there. 
judging those that take part in the first resurrection. And it's important to understand also, it says those that had been beheaded for, the, for their testimony are those taken part. Nearly wants to make you put up your hand and say, behead me, because <laughs> I want to take part. You know, If we are forced to go into a trial in this life, if we're forced to go into a tribulation and it means that we could lose our head because we refuse to take the mark, do it gladly. Do it gladly. Because you'll be part of the first resurrection. And blessed are those that take part in the first resurrection. So they'll be priests of God Most High. Priests and kings. It's interesting, isn't it? I read all that because it's fairly self-explanatory. That whole um, section of scripture. is. If you've read it a few times, it'll be pretty clear that, okay, there's a thousand years. Jesus comes back. He ends the tribulation and begins a thousand years reign. Satan is thrown into a dungeon into the abyss and he's sealed over him and there's peace on earth all right so arthur pink this is the wrath of the lamb during the tribulation arthur pink and it's just a little thing about arthur pink he was born in nottingham in england okay nottingham cousin yeah (laughs) between 1886 and 1952 and he said many there are who turn away from a vision of god's wrath as though they were called to look upon some blotch in the divine character or some blot upon the divine government. So many people, as soon as it comes to God's wrath, they think, oh no, God's a God of love. What's this wrath thing? This is crazy. I remember when my book, uh, God's Heart Cry, came out, and on the first page in the introduction, I was describing a revival and how people were falling on their knees because of a revelation that God is a God of wrath. And uh, I know that disturbed people, because people don't like to think of God, that God has a wrath, that God is a God with a wrath, but he is. And this is a part of his divine nature, and it's it's not a blot on his divine government. But what saith the Scriptures? He said, as we turn to them, we find that God has made no attempt to conceal the fact of his wrath. He hasn't tried to conceal it in Scripture. It's pretty open in Scripture. He is not ashamed to make it known that vengeance and fury belong unto him. His own challenge is, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and my hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and will reward them that hate me. Now when God says he will reward them that hate me, (laughs) he's going to reward them justly. For their hatred towards him. That's in Deuteronomy 32, 39 to 41. A study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and the wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. Because God is holy, he hates all sin, and because he hates all sin, his anger burns against the sinner. And that's in Psalm 7, 11. Now, I just want to go into this thing about God's wrath, because there's different words, different Greek words that are used for wrath. And they are different in what their meaning and the implications applied when that word is used. These words are used. In one Thessalonians five nine, Paul wrote this. He said, "For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ." Who knows that scripture? He didn't appoint us to suffer wrath. The Greek word translated to wrath here is organ, which means anger, wrath, punishment, uh, passion, vengeance. Those are the meanings of it. Now, D.E. Hybert reveals that orgy comes from the verb 
urago, and it means to teem and to swell. And it thus implies that it is not a sudden outburst, but rather refers to fixed, controlled, passionate feeling against sin, a settled indignation, something that's fixed and permanent. Right? This is important. So in light of this information, the wrath talked about here by Paul refers to hell, where God's wrath is fixed and a settled indignation that cannot be changed. It is true that God did not appoint us to suffer wrath in hell. Right? So the word he's using, he says, when he uses that word, he's like saying, God did not appoint you to suffer wrath in hell. That's what it's basically saying, because the word for that wrath is that, is that word orgy, and it comes from Morago. There's other terms used in the Bible that we've translated to wrath as well. In Revelation 16, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Now, the Greek word translated to wrath here is thymos, and it means an outburst of passion, fury, or wrath, and it's expressed passion. It indicates rage, a personal venting of anger. Right? Now, in no way expresses it as a fixed wrath, as does the word organ. And this is important because an argument for the rapture of the church being before the tribulation is that God does not appoint us to suffer his wrath. No, God doesn't appoint us to suffer wrath in hell. But it, this is nowhere that God won't vent a bit of anger on his children if they do wrong. You know what I mean? Just like a father will get angry, but does he stay angry permanent? No, but he might get angry for a moment. And God has been angry with the Israelites. You can read it th right throughout the, the book of Kings and Judges. He gets angry with them and he hands them over to his enemies or to their enemies, you know what I mean? So that's a different type of wrath. It's a different type of understanding. And that's important to understand about the wrath of the Lamb. In Revelation 6, 15 to 16, it says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every man, a free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountain. They called to the mountains and the rocks, and they said, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, these are unbelievers, aren't they? These are people that have rejected Jesus. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. Now, which word do you think they're using there? Why would they want the rocks to fall on them? What wrath do you think they're referring to? The hell. And the word for wrath here is organ. And it is the word which is used by those who had rebelled against God and hated Jesus Christ. The word is used to indicate that they have finally realized that Jesus Christ is real, and therefore, hell is also real. And in an effort to flee God's eternal wrath, organ, they attempt to hide from God. But why I'm bringing this up is in relation to the rapture and when it takes place, they believe that if God didn't appoint us to suffer wrath and then the tribulation is God's wrath being poured out on earth, then therefore we've got to be raptured. This is the wrong conclusion because they're looking at the different wrath. The wrath that's going to be poured out on earth is thymos, the wrath that they're thinking about, which is referred to in the Thessalonian scripture, is organ. Two different terms for wrath. And that's so it's a translational thing that they, they're getting mixed up with. Now in Revelation 19.15, it describes the battle of Armageddon, uh, which Jesus himself fights. And it reads this. This is pretty intense, this, this uh, scripture. It says, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath 
of God Almighty. So when it says he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, the word translated fury is thymos and the word translated wrath is organ. So he uses both those terms in the one sentence to probably express the indignation that he has towards those generals and those armies that are coming towards his people and trying to destroy his holy city. And so it is clear that at this battle, God will execute his eternal judgment of hell upon them with fury, fierceness, and finality. It's a double whammy. In relation to God's wrath, which he pours out on earth, it, that's a thymos wrath, and it's a wrath which flares up but eventually goes away like the anger of man. It eventually goes away. It flares up and goes away. In this sense, we know that the Great Tribulation is three and a half years long, so God's wrath will come and go. It'll have a beginning and it'll have an end. So it's not, that is not the wrath of hell. That's not the organ wrath. It's the thymos or thymos. Now, when God poured out his wrath on Pharaoh and Egypt, it eventually achieved its objective and then ceased, didn't it? Do you remember the story of all the plagues that, were hit, that hit Egypt? It, the, the plagues would come and go. Even in, during the, the time, you know, during each, each plague that was poured out on Egypt, it would come, it would have its effect, and then it would be taken away. And it eventually it achieved its objective, objective and then ceased. And during the Thymos wrath, God protected his people in Goshen, and they were unharmed. And this is important to understand. God can be pouring out his wrath on earth and protect his people at the same time. And sometimes that distinction is used as a sign. You know, if he's got during the Great Tribulation, if he's got people over here that his hand is over and he's got people over here that his hand is not over and they're suffering terribly and these guys are not suffering at all in the same way, you know, and these great things are happening and, and these people are protected. God is quite capable of doing that, isn't he? He did it with Noah. He did it with the people of Israel in Goshen. You know, he can do it during the Great Tribulation as well if he chooses to. So I believe the Great Tribulation will be executed in a very similar way to biblical examples of tribulations. Anyone who reads, you know, what happened when Moses went into Egypt and that pouring out of wrath from God would realise that was a tribulation, wasn't it? That was a great tribulation that occurred in Egypt. But this one's coming upon the whole earth, this one we're looking at at the moment. Now, the issue of the millennial reign, and this is what I want to just talk about, the millennial reign, that was the wrath of God. Did you sort of get a sense of that? And I think it's important. Once you understand the type of wrath we're talking about, we realise that God uses his wrath, his themos wrath, to discipline his people and discipline the unbelievers to hopefully bring them to repentance. That's what that wrath's for. But the wrath, the organ wrath, is a wrath that's that's a judgment wrath. That's a wrath that's final can't be changed. We don't want to fall under that wrath. But if we have to fall under the thymos wrath a little bit just to get corrected, so be it. I'd rather that than the organ wrath. Yeah, amen. Okay, so his millennial reign. Now, the issue of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ is, in my opinion, is a cut and dry matter. It's, it's so easy to see from Scripture the truth in relation to this matter. When you take a literal hermeneutic of the bible when you read the bible literally and you you study the uh scriptures that relate to the millennial reign of christ you can't help but see it correctly 
But if you go in there and make it all symbology and, and turn it all around and spiritualize the whole thing, you can really stuff it all up and, and get it all wrong. And that's what a lot of Christians tend to do these days. They tend to spiritualize the truth away. So I'm going to go into the millennial reign a bit. I'm going to give you a brief overview of the three positions held in the church in relation to the millennial reign of Christ. And the last one is the one I believe in, because it's pretty obvious in my opinion. So to look into this subject in more depth, um, I want you to go to the iTunes store and search for the sermon by Joe Schimmel. And that's called, uh, the sermon is under the Revelation series, and it's called Kingdom When. And if you key in Blessed Hope Chapel, and that's a fantastic sermon um, on when it's going to take play on and how the millennium is going to uh, run its course and how it's going to play out. And also to get a e deeper insight into the preterism, um, and preterism is a, a view which amillennialists tend to take, and uh, that everything written in the book of Revelation has already happened back in 70 AD, and just there's some real dreadful implications are the result of taking a preterist view of the book of Revelation. And Joe Schimmel reveals all of that in the Revelation series, and it's called Soon and Very Soon. Also type in Blessed Hope Chapel to get the right sermon there as well. So remember that title is Soon and Very Soon. Anyway, the first is some people take a post-millennial view, and post-millennialists teach that the second coming of Christ will occur after or post the millennium. So there'll be a thousand years of peace, but Christ won't be here. Christ is going to come after the thousand years of peace is ended. Right? That's called post-millennium. And I don't know how anyone can get to think that because the scriptures are very clear that it's not that. But they teach that the church will bring about the 1,000 years of peace and not Christ by his second coming. So they believe the church itself is going to set up government and basically cause everyone on earth to become Christian. So the whole earth will be Christianized. If they believe that the church is going to set up, it will become a Christian government and the whole world is going to be Christianized, can you see the implications of how that might change the Great Commission? Yeah? The problem with this view is that the Great Commission is changed from making disciples of nations and winning the lost to Christ to ruling all the nations. Who's trying to rule all the nations at the moment? Who's, what's a religion that's out there trying to do that at present? Islam. It's clearly trying to rule the nations and force people to become Muslim. So therefore a post-millennialist with that will have a kingdom now mentality. They'll believe that it's now. We've got to do it now. and we, We're the guys who got to do it. We've got to bring peace to the world. And they'll preach world peace. Even... Um, Rick Warren at the moment, he's got this thing called the Peace Plan, the World Peace Plan. And he's working with, the, in, with an ecumenical movement to bring about world peace. You know, and it's crazy because the Bible doesn't tell us to go and try to achieve world peace. The Bible tells us to win souls, disciple people into the kingdom. And Jesus actually said this. He said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. He was very clear. He did not come to bring peace to the world. Actually, if anything, Jesus has caused more disruption than you can imagine. How much easier, Bill, would your life be generally if you weren't preaching Christ? There'd be far less people, you know, picking, picking arguments with you and stuff, wouldn't it? I would have far less trouble with people if I didn't preach Jesus. So would you, ain't it? Now, there's also amillennialism, and this is the view that teaches that there will not be 1,000 years of peace at all in the future that there won't be a thousand years. The kingdom of God is now 
and Christ reigns now from heaven over the church. So amillennialism doesn't even believe that the Bible tells us that there's a 1,000 years of peace, even though it's clear in Scripture. They believe that the general state of the earth will get increasingly worse and, and it will end with the Great Tribulation and after that Christ will return and judge the living and the dead and then we enter into our eternal state. So there's no thousand years, even though the Bible's expressly clear in that. To believe that this, this view, a name millennialist, has to spiritualise away the clear references in Scripture to 1,000 years apiece. This is the view that I hold to. A pre-millennialist believe that Jesus Christ returns to reign upon the physical throne of David from Jerusalem to commence the thousand years apiece. That he's coming to claim the physical throne of David, which he has not yet sat on. And he's coming and he will sit on it and he will rule from Jerusalem and there will be a 1,000 years of peace. The return of Christ will put an end to the tribulation and commence the millennium and Christ will rule the nations. Amen. That's what we're looking forward to and that's what the Bible says, doesn't it? And this view is the most literal and obvious interpretation of the scriptures upon the reading of our text. It's Revelation 19 to 20. Mm. Now, the last part of this sermon, and this is going to be covering the last part of the future reign of Christ or the future ministry of Christ is his everlasting reign and we'll need you to get your Bibles going again get back to Revelation so after the millennial reign of Christ is complete Satan will gather an army against the Lord and attack the city that he loves which is Jerusalem but their end will be swift as God will destroy them all by fire from heaven so let's read that Revelation 20 now, this is the interesting thing about, the, about prophecy is this is history in advance. We're looking at something as if it's been done, right? We can talk about it as if it's something that happened 2,000 years ago, but it's going to happen in 1,000 years. That's amazing. That's what's so good about prophecy. That's why we've got an amazing God. So Revelation 20, 7 to 10, and it says this. When the 1,000 years are over... Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. So he's going to go out and he'll start preaching. He'll raise a massive army. It's amazing how you could be on... This is the incredible thing. Jesus has been on earth for a thousand years with humanity and still humanity will turn their backs on Jesus. That's incredible. So if we're, if we're thinking it's hard to get people to come to Christ now and Jesus isn't even here with us, that's a pretty good reason why, because Satan, has, he does an incredible job of deceiving people. So how hard is it now? And even then when Jesus is there with them, they're still going to turn their backs on Jesus. So he's going to gather them from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and he's going to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. <clears throat> I find that incredible when I read that. There's going to be millions of them and they're all going to come and storm Jerusalem. Listen to what it says. They march across the breadth of the earth. So they actually march a long way together and they surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. And we know that city. But fire came down from heaven and it devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's freaky, isn't it? 
Now let's go to the next bit. It says, This will usher in the great white throne judgment, and all those who rebelled against God will be judged and condemned. So let's look at Revelation 20, 11 to 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a pretty heavy judgment. There's going to be a lot of people, a lot of people thrown into that fire because there has been a lot of unbelievers throughout history so far. Now, the last element is this. This is where it all, this is like the capping off of the uh, thousand years of peace, but this is where it all is finalised. After this, the new Jerusalem will descend upon earth and God himself will come to earth and dwell with men and he will live forevermore in the presence of God the Father, and he also lived in the presence of God the Son, and will be living, filled and perfected by the Holy Spirit. And this is the last part, Revelation 21, 1-8. And it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So a new heaven and a new earth. There was no longer any sea, because remember, the sea seems to be a place like Hades, where it holds souls captive. So the sea is now removed, just like Hades and hell were thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. There's no more sea. You can't drink salt water, can you? Yeah, but I think that's why it's got to be fresh water. It's got to be the river of life. All water must be the river of life. It's got to be brimming with life. That will be uh, bless us. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Isn't that going to be amazing? No more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God and he'll be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And I added that last bit so we can see that there is a clear distinction of those that live for Christ and live a holy life to those that reject Christ and live unholy lives. And their place is going to be the lake of burning sulfur. Yeah. With that, it's complete. We've completed the Christology series. Just in relation to the critical doctrine, we're going to continue with eschatology. That's sort of like an eschatology sermon anyway. All right, let's, uh, let's pray. 
thank you, Lord. Lord, I just thank you for this uh, time now and the honour to be able to preach this message. And I just pray that the message did help us in some ways, at least have clear in our mind what's going to be taking place uh, at the end of the tribulation when you return in the thousand years. And so we can understand what that time is going to be like and what's going to happen at the end of that time and also the eternal reign when you come and you set up your kingdom permanently. And the wonderful thing about when you come, that Lord, you're going to, Lord God the Father, you're going to be with us and you're going to come here as well. So we're going to have Jesus with us for a thousand years and then the Father is going to come so we'll be with the Lord forever. And these are going to be amazing days. Just I just pray speed your coming, Lord Jesus. Let this, let this thousand years of peace begin so that we can... Uh, just spend eternity with you. And we pray that all our families will come to believe, Lord, so that they will not be thrown into that lake of burning sulfur. We pray for all our friends and loved ones, people we know that um, that have rejected you and uh, have no concept of you and don't want anything to do with belief of any kind. And we just pray for an awakening to strike them in their hearts, Lord, strike them in their minds so they can see the desperate need they have of to believe in you, because really you hold our life in your in your hands. And Lord, we don't want to suffer under the wrath of God for eternity. But Lord, correct us now so that we can be with you forever in the kingdom of God. Just uh, pray your blessing over us this week. Uh, cover us with your precious blood and give us a wonderful week all in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you search Rob Cartledge in the iTunes store or go to www.robcartledge.com, you'll see a number of different sermon series uncovering religion, truth, judgment, and eternity, apologetics 101, critical doctrine, and end times. Feel free to check them out.